before we do open God's Word. Is that all right? So back in, uh, back in April, we were supposed to start small groups, and we had nine small groups planned, and some of you are planning on leading small groups, and some of you have started them since the, the things have opened up again. The stay-at-home order has been lifted. But uh, the majority of those small groups just haven't happened yet. Now, I just wanted to remind you what the context for this is. Why do we want small groups? What's the point? Well, there's a, a few things that we talked about when we were talking about small groups, but the biggest one, biggest two, are discipleship and outreach. There's two ways that we can do outreach. One is institutional outreach, and that's uh, when I say, hey guys, we're going to have a big evangelistic series. We need $20,000. Please pitch in as much as you can. No, a little bit more, please. And then, and then I say, I'd like your help too, because we have a meal to serve, and we have greeters, and we need this, and we need that. And, uh, and so we, we get all of you involved. We do big advertising campaign. We, we hire somebody that actually can speak well, hopefully, and uh, that will attract people. And this is institutional evangelism. Hopefully, we get some baptisms out of, the, out of the whole thing, and hopefully, they stick around. Um, have you ever done evangelism like this? It's, it is an important tool. I don't want to knock it at all, but if we were to simply say that evangelism and outreach was that mechanism or the depression and recovery program that we're going to do in, in uh, September, whatever it is that we do as an institution, then our, our reach is really limited, just as an example, how many friends do you have in social media? If you have a Facebook account, do you have five, 20, 50, 100? Well, the church as an institution has only a few friends on Facebook, <laughs> not very much reach. We don't have a big uh, impact on our community as an institution, but you as individuals have a huge impact on our community. Each one of you has networks of relationships that the church can't uh, possibly connect with, but you can. And so small groups are an opportunity for you to organize, to get together as, as smaller groups, and to, and to reach out to those networks of friends that you have and say, hey, come, come to my Bible study on Tuesday night. Come do this nature walk with us on Wednesdays, or whatever it is that you're doing in the small group. And those connections build confidence and give opportunities for ministering to people's real needs. And, and, and then when the time comes that we have an institutional evangelism effort and... Uh, you know, whether it's spending $30,000 in evangelistic series or doing something small like a, an open house around Christmas time, whenever we have some kind of outreach that the institution is doing, then you can invite those friends to come along. So as an outreach function, it's the most powerful tool that we can employ, not advertising, not big name speakers, but you intentionally reaching your community in small groups. But the second is discipleship, and that's a huge problem when we only do institutional evangelism. We can get to the point where we, we, we dunk them, and then we leave them, and we say, well, hope you stick around. Uh, you know, too bad that you left when, when they're gone. But that's not how God is. Jesus discipled the disciples. He, he spent three and a half years with them. He hung out with them. He did, he did meals with them, and He did life with them. He went to their homes, and He had them over well, at his friend's house anyway. <laughs> he didn't have a home, did he? And, and so we have the same opportunity in discipleship. We grow each other as we spend time doing life with each other. We need to be discipled. How many of you here need to be discipled? <laughs> please raise your hand. Please, everybody. <laughs> we all need discipleship. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian most of your life or just a tiny, tiny bit. You need 
somebody who can, can uh, well, how does the Bible say? Iron sharpening iron. So small groups, they're really important. It's an important um, opportunity for our church to step into outreach and to reach all those networks that you each individually have. But it's also an opportunity for us to grow each other and grow those who God is bringing into our church um, as Christians and as followers of Jesus. So uh, we made the announcement Monday, 6.30. If you have been asked previously to be a small group leader, please come. If you are interested in participating in some way as a leader or a host or something, please come. And we'd like to organize and make sure that we've got a good back-end system in place so that when we start small groups, as many of you can participate as possible. Now, that doesn't mean that this is a mandate. If you're not participating in a small group, you will not be censured. (laughs) You will not be judged. (laughs) It's okay. We just want to make as many opportunities possible as we can. That was my chat. Let's pray and and let's get into God's Word. Father in heaven, thank you for the Word. Thank you for giving us these stories of how you've interacted with us. And specifically, as we start these series, thank you for revealing yourself at the time of Mount Sinai through the Ten Commandments and so many other things that you shared with Israel. Please give give us a transformation as we experience the Ten Commandments maybe in a new way. Help us to understand your grace and your power to save. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In uh, January, uh, January 8, 2019, the Christian Post published an article entitled, Andy Stanley Says the Ten Commandments Don't Apply to Christians. Andy Stanley is a pastor that preaches to an audience of about 33,000 people in the, the Georgia area. It's the North Point Community Church. He's a He's written a bunch of books. He's a leadership guru, whatever that means. And he's got a pretty powerful voice in the Christian community. And he says that the Ten Commandments don't apply. In a column published in Relevant Magazine, Stanley argued, if we're going to create a monument to stand as a statement to our faith, shouldn't it at least be something that actually applies to us? He suggested that instead of trying to put copies of Ten Commandments everywhere, Christians should be putting up uh, statues of uh, the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. Um, I want to read this to you. Participants in the New Covenant, Stanley says, that's Christians, are not required to obey any of the commandments found in the first part of their Bibles. Participants in the New Covenant are expected to obey the single command Jesus issued as part of His New Covenant, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, I, I appreciate where Andy Stanley is going with this. I, I kind of like the idea that we'd focus on Jesus and love, um, but I, I don't think that he got there from the right direction. Um, he believes that love replaces the Ten Commandments, and I don't think that that's exactly what's going on in the Bible. I've read a bunch of books in preparing for a series that I'm starting right now called God Wrote Love, a series about the Ten Commandments. And, and every one of these books has uh, really valuable things to say about the Ten Commandments. They lift up the Ten Commandments as the moral foundation of any good government, not even just a godly government. Any good government is founded on principles that God gave us in the Ten Commandments. And they, they extol its virtues and... and uh, talk about it not just as a beautiful document, but as something spiritually significant. And in that way, they're kind of like King David, who said this in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimony I delight as much as in all riches. And and not Andy, not me, not anybody else uh, can contradict David's profound words about the value and magnificence of the moral nature of God's law. This is quite literally the most significant document in all of human history. Is there anything else that God wrote in His own hand? He's spoken things other people have written for Him, but this was written by God's own hand. There's, there's a lot of significance here. And yet, glorifying the commandments is kind of like walking up to the fence that protects you from the high voltage wires in a power transfer plant and being like, wow, what an amazing fence. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's good that the fence is there, and it's really important that it's there, but, but sometimes our focus is so much on, like, what does it mean to not lie, or how exactly do we keep the Sabbath, you know, keep from breaking it, and, and uh, you know, all these nuances of the law that we, we end up not paying attention to all the possibilities it enables. In, in, in fact, if we look closely at the law, we'll see beauty, But I think God has given us the law not simply as an exercise in a beautiful government or some nice legal system or high moral values. He's given us the law to protect something that He really wants for us. There's a uh, there's lots of places in the Bible where the 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 law is connected to the idea of a fence. Um, In Isaiah 58, it's talking about being repairs of the breach, 58 and 59. And what's the breach? Well, there's a a social breach that's happened, um, and then it also mentions the Sabbath in there. And the idea is that when we are obedient to God, when we follow God, we are building the, we're, we're repairing the holes in the wall that God designed to protect us. Walls are great for protecting cities, right? They're kind of Everything outside the city has potential danger. Inside the city, we're safe because we have a wall. And that's kind of the mindset that we have. Some people suggest that this wall is kind of like the, a fence around a playground. When you put the kids inside the playground, you're perfectly happy for them to play as long as they don't go outside the fence where there's, you know, cars whizzing by and, I don't know, dangerous high-rise apartments outside. I worked in Manhattan for a few months, and, and parks, all the parks have fences. Have you, there's no fences around here, are there? So that probably doesn't connect with us, but that's all right. Imagine a park, safety, good stuff. Everything inside the fence is good. But do we have our idea of what the law protects accurate? Because I don't see a small area of goodness and a world of badness in the, in the, the uh, Bible stories. Think about the story of the Garden of Eden. God creates an entire world, and and then He he designs, specifically plants a garden for Adam and Eve, and then He puts a metaphorical fence around one small spot. The inside of the fence was the entire world. The outside, the thing that you're supposed to be protected from, that's the tree. And, And so, I wonder if we pay so much attention to what the law keeps us from the evil and the sin and, and whatnot, that, that we fail to recognize what the, the law enables, what it, what it permits, what it al- not just allows, but what it gives us the opportunity for. Without it, we wouldn't have that opportunity. 
What are the opportunities the law provides? What is the the whole world of possibilities the law suggests? And that's what I'd like to explore in this series, not just an examination of the rules that God has given us and how wonderful they are, but an examination of the possibilities that the law launches in our lives. So let's uh, begin this exploration with a... uh, with a little background about God's law. Because God's law isn't just a list of rules. When God, there on the mountain, when He put the law on those tables of stone, He wrote down love. He wrote down something so much more significant than just a list of rules. Uh, When you think about it, the God that uh, brought these commands to the tables of stone and gave it to us the, the God who wants to put it in our hearts, He's the God of heaven. He's the one that is the author of all the laws of the universe. And so when He's bringing us something significant like the Ten Commandments, He's bringing it the principles that govern His universe, not just the details for our experience, but the principles, the bigger principles for the whole universe. And we're going to look, uh, as we start this series, we're going to look in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to study the, the first command where it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And let's just read it for a moment. It starts out, I am the Lord your God. Who, who is this God? Just some random God from the Nile? No, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Has anybody been reading Exodus and trying to figure out the connection between the law and slavery and God's revelation on, the, uh, on Mount Sinai and his desire to bring them out of slavery? I sent an email a few weeks ago asking, inviting you to join me in a study of that. I haven't come to any conclusions, so if you have, let me know. Um, I'm just exploring the idea because he makes it very clear at the beginning, I'm the God that delivered you from slavery. So the, the revelation of himself and the, the application of God's principles into these Ten Commandments have something to do with their previous experience in Egypt. So I'm, I'm still exploring that. We'll not get into it today, but, but it'd, it'd be interesting to get your input. If you haven't started studying Exodus for that and giving me some feedback, I'd, I'd appreciate it. So, the the truth is, when you look at this, there are no other gods. He says, you shall have no other god before me, but there are no other gods. He is the only god. Everything else is just, you know, me or you or whoever else that that figures it out, deciding that, that, well, that cow looks like a god to me because, and, you know, we make up something, or, or the sun looks like a god because, and we make up something. It's a created being. It's an imagination of, of humans, but it's not it's not something worthy of our worship. The only being in all of the universe worthy of our worship is the one who is self-existent, who is uncreated, the creator God, that the supreme Lord of the universe, that is the God that is worthy of our worship. But what does it mean to have no other gods before me? I'd like to take you to another passage, and we're going to spend the rest of the sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and, and this is known as the Shema, or the Shema. I'm going to call it the Shema because that's easy for me to say. And it says this, 
And you'll get to know why it's called the Shema in a second, and, uh, and we'll explore the major words in this. And I think we'll find two things from this passage. Number one, who is this God that we're supposed to have no other gods before? And number two, what does it mean to have God? What is this idea that it's trying to convey in the first of the, the Ten Commandments? So the, the passage here, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, have the, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. For thousands of years, Jews have, have uh, spoken the Shema in the morning as they got up, in the evening as they went to bed. It, it's a major component in the Jewish thought. And so I want to explore this because it's so significant in the idea of keeping the first of the Ten Commandments and what the law enables, what the possibilities are in this law that God has given us. So let's start with the word here. Guess what the word here is? Shema. That's why we get the name for the whole passage. It's the here passage, the Shema. Shema is uh, a word that means hear. That's kind of something you do with your ears or listen. Um, But there's more significance than that. Uh, For example, uh, here in Proverbs 20, verse 12, God says, ears that Shema or hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. So it's definitely connected with hearing, with listening. But it could also be pay attention, focus on this, notice something here. Uh, For example, when Jacob showed favoritism to Rachel, Leah got pregnant, and she's like, wow, and she she gives birth, and she names the son, her firstborn, Shimon, Simon, and it means God has heard. And she says, the Lord is Shema, that I am unloved. Shema can also be used when you want someone to respond to you. And all throughout the Bible, you have prophets uh, saying, I want your response, God. And, and they say things like, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Uh, this is the, the idea, I want you to not just hear me, but I want you to respond and interact with me. God used this word, Shema, when He was responding to Israel. In Exodus 19.5, it says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. This word uh, shema is translated there as obey. In fact, it's actually two words, shema, shema. In other words, when you listen carefully or you obey closely, the, the, there's no word for obey in the Hebrew language. It's Shema. If you want to say that uh, I'm listening, um, I'm going to actually do what you say, then you're going to say Shema. And it's connected here in God's mind with the obedience to the covenant, to keeping His covenant promises with them. So, when the Israelites fail to keep the promises, guess what the, the prophets say? They say, they have ears, but they're not listening. They have ears, but they're not Shema. Because there's an active interaction with Shema. It's both the listening and the responding, the interacting. In fact, there's, there's no word, I mentioned there's no word for obey. So when, when it's, I'm going to say, I'm going to listen, I'm going to do, you're saying Shema. And, and you're 
putting effort into it. You're respecting the person that you're listening to by, by paying attention and by going forward and doing what they've asked for you to do. So, the, the passage, it starts with here, Shema, O Israel, but then it goes on to another significant word, and it says the Lord, and this is where we're going to find out who this God that we're not supposed to have any other gods before really is. Lord. Uh, do, do you notice that this particular word is in all caps? If you look in your Bible, it might be in all caps as well. Do you see that? Some Bibles don't do it, but, but most of them do. This is the divine name for God. Uh, this isn't other names, like, uh, for instance, there's, uh, there's, there's names like Adon. Adon could be a lord. Um, in, in fact, Bill, you're an Adon. <laughs> you're the supervisor of a group of men. And so, because of that, you have this responsibility. If you were in the, the culture of Israel at the time, they might have called you a lord. But this is not the kind of lord that's mentioned here. This is the very specific divine name of God. And there's, there's other lowercase Lord, L-O-R-D, um, several places in the Bible, talks about men, talks about um, uh, rulers. Here, this story begins with, uh, with Moses. And Moses is in the wilderness, up on the mountain, taking care of sheep. He sees a burning bush, and he's kneeling before the bush. God asks him to go to to uh, Egypt to deliver his people, and he asks this question, what should I say when people ask, who is it that sent me? And God responds, Eye. Um, I I think I say that right, Eye. I'm I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I might be saying that completely wrong. (laughs) The word there is translated in your Bible as, I am that I am, or I will be, the the self-existent one the one who is, the one who will be. This idea of I am doesn't really transfer well, though. Imagine if Moses comes back to Egypt and he says, when, when somebody asks him, so who sent you? Who is this God? And he's like, uh, I am. <laughs> doesn't work very well. So, so God needs to give him something else. And so he adds to this and he says, Yahweh, which is the, the Hebrew word for he will be. And, and, and it puts it not just Moses is saying I am, uh, and, and in this case it says, say that Yahweh sent you, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of your forefathers is the one who sent you. Uh, so, so he gives them this new name. Down through the ages, the scribes and scholars and transcribers of the Bible, they wanted to honor the name Yahweh, and, and so they, they replaced the letters with the letters of Adonai. Adonai is like Adon, like the, the, the Lord, little case, you know, lowercase letters Lord, but it's not, it's not intended for anybody. Adonai is like, like my, my Papa God is kind of the way that that, that word is used. And, and so this is specific to God, but not the name God gave for himself. And so in respecting God's name, they replaced the letters so that anybody reading would know that when they read Yahweh, they were to say Adonai, because they had the vowels of Adonai in the mix. But down through the years, as we've taken what was written in the Hebrew scriptures, intending to protect the name, we've kind of got this hybrid name that we've constructed, and it becomes Yehovah, 
for us. Never a name that the Jews ever spoke because Yahweh was God's, the he will be is God's divine name and Adonai is the name that they would speak. But we have this new Jehovah name that we often say. So Moses gives this divine name here, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This God, the particular God of creation, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of deliverance from Egypt, this God, He is one. Now, that that word one is an interesting word. It's uh, echad. You don't need to worry about any of these Hebrew words, but it's important for you to to kind of process through it a little bit with me. So if you're taking notes down, you can spell that E-C-H-A-D. But echad is the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 2 when the, the Bible says, and this is Moses talking, oops, um, I, I, I went back uh, to a place I wasn't intending. Genesis 2.24 is where we should be. Anyway, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one. This idea of oneness is about unity more than singularity. And so when it says the Lord, the Lord our God is one, then he's saying that the Lord is united this is the, the three persons of creation, the, the Father, Administrator, the Son who um, in, uh, first, in, in John 1 says was uh, the Creator and without Him nothing was made that was made. And the Holy Spirit is there in Genesis hovering over the waters. This, this God of three persons is one, is unified. And, and it's also suggesting something a little bit different. Uh, when you look at, at this this word one, it also means by himself or alone. God is the Lord alone. And this is where we come back um, to the idea, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, I am the only God. And so he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the God of our ancestors, the God of creation, the God of the Exodus, he is our God alone. And both of these things are are significant. So the next thing that he says in this this Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God. The word love is uh, ahava. Can you say that one? Ahava. Ahava. Now, ahava is, is not... Well, it's the kind of love that you have for your neighbor, for your friend. Um, it's the kind of love that it, it's used when the king sees Esther. He has a hava for her. There's something connected to desire, but there's other words in Hebrew for desire. This one's more of a general love in the Hebrew. And so you have uh, characters like Jonathan, who ahavas David, or uh, you have Abraham, who ahavas Isaac. There's There's a parental connection, a brotherly love. Um, there, there's also the love that a, a nation has for the King David. They, they are said to Ahava David as a whole nation. And, and then you have the king of, of um, Tyre. I might have that one wrong. Uh, anyway, the king, of, the, the king of Tyre, I think it is. He loves David, and so he provides 
uh, goods for the, the building of the temple. He, uh, he ahavas David, this loyalty between a political connection. All these aspects of this word, this broad word for love, tie in to our understanding of God's ahava, God's love. For instance, in Deuteronomy 7, just the next chapter after the Shema, this passage in Deuteronomy 6, it says, God showed affection for you. He, he chose you because of His ahava for you. And this implies that God's love is not dependent on the Israelites. God's love predates the Israelites. He loves because He is love, like in 1 John 4, 8, where it says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God ahavas because God is ahava. He is love. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no beginning. It has no end because the God of love has no beginning and has no end. Uh, The prophet Hosea compares God's love to the love of a husband for his spouse. And and, uh, other prophets compare his love as a parent for a child. But it's not just this emotional bond, this really strong connection that we have with each other that God has with us, because God's ahava is not just emotional. God's ahava is action-oriented. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, I have loved you with an Oh, I'm sorry, that's Jeremiah. He says, and because he loved your fathers and chose your offspring after them, and because you, um, he, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, I think I'm behind in my presentation. I, here's my problem. I put too many things on the screen. You knew that already. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love and to serve Him, and to keep His commandments? So God is, He's action-oriented. He's he's the one that brings them out of Egypt because of His love, and now He invites them to respond in love to Him. And these words, fear and walk and serve and keep, they're all connected to this idea of love, ahava. There's an action component to love. We don't just have emotion for somebody. Our emotion impacts our activity, our behavior. In Deuteronomy, God says that He shows ahava for the poor, for the widow, for the immigrant. And and we're told that when we show God love, when we show others love, we're showing God love. Uh, You can find that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in, uh, sorry, Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the, the Ten Commandments are organized into two sections, two tablets. One is love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then the, the other is love your neighbor as yourself, because in loving our neighbor, we're showing love to God. So let's look at these heart, soul, mind words in the Shema. Uh, You shall love the Lord your God. You shall not just have emotion for Him, but this active love. And and it says that we we should have this love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. When you think of this all word, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength... 
all is a, it's a big encompassing word. But God is not asking for our all without giving his all. The Israelites didn't know it yet. They were starting to get an inkling through the sacrificial system, but Jesus would one day come. God himself would come and give his all for us, his everything. And you'll see, I think, as we look at these three words, heart, soul, and might, that Jesus gave us all of those things before he ever asked us for those things from us. The first word, heart. is the word lev. Uh, You don't need to know very much about the the Hebrew word, but we'll leave that there on the screen. And and you should know that the Hebrew culture, they did not have a word for the mind. The heart, they knew the heart was something that was actually um, physical. It was the origin of physical life. They knew that if the heart stopped, you'd stop living. For example, Nabal, in uh, the story of David, uh, David comes to this guy, and he's about to attack him because he'd been really rude, and, and anyway, he got interrupted, and that's a really fun story by itself, but, but Nabal hears about this, and it, the Bible says that his, his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. He had a heart attack, and so we have this, uh, this idea in the Bible that the heart is connected to life, to the physical life, but it's also um, our the origin of our intellectual capacities. Um, You can uh, have uh, knowledge in your heart. Wisdom dwells in your heart. The, The heart is the place that we discern truth from error. So there's a lot of connections that the heart makes. Uh, intellectually. There's no place, there's no mind word in, in Hebrew. It all is about the heart. They, they also believe not, that just, not just that the, the heart was the physical component or the intellectual component, but there's an emotional component to the heart as well. And the emotions of the heart include all kinds of things. Um, you can experience fear in your heart. Um, have you ever read where somebody's heart melted? <laughs> That's fear. They were afraid. Um, you can be distressed. You can be depressed. Um, you can also experience joy. Joy is uh, to be good of heart in Hebrew. So the heart has all these different ideas surrounding it. Uh, it's, it's really all-encompassing when you think about it. The heart is the intellect. The heart is the emotion. The heart is not just those things, but it's also the choice. For instance, David had it in his heart to build the temple. It was a desire that he had, and he moved forward to try to get those pieces together for his son. When you have a desire in your heart, you act on it. And so the, the, the heart is the place of choices and and, and all of these things, God invites us to love Him with our mind, our intellect, our emotion, our choice, our physical life. All of that is part of our love for God. And then the next word is soul, with all of your soul. Now, this word, unfortunately, comes with all kinds of Greek philosophy baggage, and, and what the soul is not in Hebrew literature, it is not some um, uh, impersonal, uh, non-physical uh, essence of a person that is piled into some body until that body dies and then released at death. That is not what the Hebrew mind ever thought about when they wrote or, or said or read this word nefesh. Nefesh in fact, the, the, the word there, my, uh, my clicker is broken. It's not clicking. 
<laughs> the, the word nephesh is, is really throat. Maybe you thought that nephesh meant wind. But, but uh, here in uh, Numbers eleven six, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and they're saying, we really wish we had the watermelon back in Egypt because our nephesh is dry, our throat is dry. Um, or when Joseph was hauled off to slavery in Egypt, the Bible says that his nephesh was put into shackles. He, he had a, a shackle around his neck, a, a chain connected to him. And since our whole body is impacted by what goes through our throats, the Bible also uses nephesh as an uh, identification for a physical person, an individual. And, and so, for instance, in Genesis 46, 15, the Bible says there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family. Or in Numbers 31, 19, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer. Or in Deuteronomy 24, 7, a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief, a soul thief. That's an interesting one. Um, so, throughout the Bible, we have all these uh, references to people referring themselves to re- referring to themselves as nephesh. For example, in Song of Songs, maybe you guys could switch that to the next slide. In Song of Psalms, there's a, a uh, woman who is talking about her lover, and she says that this is the one whom my nephesh loves. My whole body loves this person. L- love is not just an emotion. It's something that... It's something that encompasses your whole being. And especially when you talk about the love between a husband and a wife, there's something about desire that's very physical in its nature. And if you look at Psalm 42, there, the writers of the Bible do some really amazing things with the, the, the words of um, the, this idea of, of my body or my physicalness loving God. So um, Psalm 42, it says, As the deer... Pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, O God, for the living God. So this physical throat thing, it's connected to thirst, just like the deer thirsting for water. But then he he says, this is a metaphor. My physical thirst, my desire for water is a metaphor for my desire to, to know and be known by my creator God. There, there's a very physical connection to God that we have. The next word, so all of my, all of my heart, all of my body, my throat, my soul, <laughs> and all of my strength, my meod. Meod is a strange-sounding word, isn't it? And, and you know what's funny? This is the only place in the entire Bible that meod is translated as strength. And in fact, there's lots of good words for strength, and meod is not one of them. So what in the world is the Bible author talking about when he says to love God with all of your meod? Well, meod is a, an interesting word. It's an, I think my wife might correct me here, but it's an adverb. It's a word modifier. So it can mean very or much or something like this. So in, a, in essence, God is asking us to love him with all of our muchness. Does that make any sense to you? Hopefully in just a moment it will. When, when he uses the word meod, usually it's connected to another word, like when God says about creation, uh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then on the last day, he said, it's meod good. It's very good. All right? Or when uh, 
Uh, you, you can find this all throughout the Bible. People are, are called meod happy, or the, the waves in the, the, the flood are called meod powerful, or the, the creation is meod good, or somebody is, is uh, said to be meod angry. Very or much is this, what this word really means. But um, why in the world is it saying that we should love God with all our muchness? Heart makes sense, our soul or our body makes sense, but what about this much thing? Well, when you think about it, it's a modifier. It modifies the things that are around it, and it says, whatever that was, it's very that. It's a lot more that. In fact, you can put it together and say, miod miod, it's much, much. <laughs> and, the, and they use that to try to, to, to get something to its maximum potential, right? So a... a uh, a miod word at the end of this Shema is saying that we should love God with our everything. Now, okay, so at the beginning it says, love God with all your heart, which is kind of all kinds of capacities of your body and your, and your mind and your heart and your, you know, your, your emotions and whatnot. And then he says, love God with your, your physical being, uh, with all of your potential and capacities. And then he says, love Him muchly. Love Him with all of it, everything, every potential, every possibility, every capacity, anything that could possibly be you, He says, love God with that. It makes more sense now to love God with all your muchness, right? (laughs) So when we look at the Shema, and we see this love for God, uh, Jesus uses two words, to describe miyod, and, and I, I like how he says it. He says, love God with all of your mind and power. And we think about that, mind and power are really connected to anything that's possible that you can do. In, in uh, Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translated the Shema as dunamis. Dunamis is the Greek word for well, we get the word dynamite from it. And so it's explosive power. Love God with all your power is the idea there, um, or might. Uh, but when the Aramaic translation um, translates the Shema, it says that miod is wealth. Because money is kind of like a, a tangible way that you can use your power in the world. And Jesus kind of connects all of these ideas when he says your mind and your power, all of the possibilities that you have, you should love God with. And there's, there's no limit to how we can express love for God. And I think when we look at Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, and he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, love me with your everything. Have me and me alone as your God. To have God is to be loved by God and to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our everything. Obedience to the law, it's not about uh, what you do or what you don't do. When God invites you to obey His covenant, He's inviting you into a vibrant living relationship with him. He wants, he wants all of our muchness. <laughs> he wants all of our everything. Anything possible that we have, he, he says, give me that. But he doesn't leave us empty-handed. 
because He gives us all of His muchness too. He gives us everything that He has. And we have this dynamic, interactive relationship with Him. And when He says that, that we should have no other gods because there aren't any other gods, what He's really saying is, have me, take me. Just like a, a wedding vow. You know, the, the wedding vows, there's lots of different versions of it. But it's this idea that I'm going to give me to you, and you're going to give you to me, and, and the two of us will now be in a relationship that, that lasts. Well, and keep in mind that the, the relationship of marriage lasts until death. The covenant, the promise there is, is a, a broken at the time of death. But our covenant with God, it's eternal. It is the only covenant and the only love that is eternal. God is your original soulmate. He's the only one that truly knows you, and He's the one that wants you for all eternity. There is no relationship on earth that compares, and in fact, we are told that we love because He first loved us. And so, all the things that we do in our relationships on earth, the love we have for our spouse, the love we have for our children, the love we have for our friends and our our family, that love is the, it's got the foundation of God's love underneath it and the ideal of God's love in front of it. The, the love of God is the thing that encompasses all love that we can have for each other. We're going to have a baptism this afternoon. Three young people I, I shared earlier, they're going to be baptized. And this, this baptism is kind of like that commitment in marriage. God has already made the commitment to you. But when in baptism, you respond and you say, you've got me, God. I'm going to give you all my muchness, <laughs> all my heart, all my soul, every possibility that I have, my, my moments in life, my time, my money in life, my power, my, my imagination and creativity and you know, all of my desires. Those are all yours, God. That's what we're saying when we give God our love and when we have no other gods before Him. Maybe you've already given your heart to God. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad. But, but today is a good day for you to say, God, you've got it. You've got all my muchness still. You've got all of my everything. You're my soulmate. You're my lover. I want you and you alone. Amen. Maybe you haven't given your heart to God or you've given your heart to God, but not made a full expression of that through baptism. I'd like you to talk to me afterwards. Come to the baptism this afternoon. Chat with me then. Let's talk about what a commitment in baptism might look like. God wants your everything. He says, have no other gods but me, which means to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Love him with your everything. And, and, and that's something that we can tell other people about, can't we? When we're married, we're married in public. We don't just go secretly away. Well, I don't know, some of you might have. <laughs> the ideal is you don't just secretly go away and get married by yourselves. No, you get married in public because it's a public confession of a covenant relationship that you're making with each other. And this is the same idea with God. We are not in a relationship with God in isolation. When we, when we join God, we join His family. And this is God's family. Amen. Baptism is a public expression of a commitment that you've made to Christ. And if you need to make that, if you haven't yet been baptized, then I'd like you to, to chat with me. Let's talk about what that commitment looks like. Let's close with a hymn, a hymn that says to God, we love you. And the hymn is number 248, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Let's sing this with our heart, with our soul, and with all our 
with all our muchness. And it's easier to sing when you stand up, so let's stand and sing 248. Lord, there is a universe of possibilities for how we can love you. And we know that love is so unique to our relationship with you. 